Welcome to Full Proof Theology. My name is Chase Davis and I am your host. It's uh, been a couple weeks, a few weeks since I've uh, recorded an episode. Um, I'm recording this on a Wednesday um, following Christmas and New Year. So Happy New Year to all of you who are uh, listening to this episode. It, we took a few weeks off. I had some guests lined up and both of them experienced internet outages. And so um, we had to postpone those. So I had a couple of things lined up before Christmas but we're going to get things dialed back in. It's been a busy time of year, and so I took uh, took a couple weeks off. We're traveling to uh, Texas to go see some family because uh, Kim's granddad passed away. And so you can be praying for us in that. Uh, that's part of the reason I'm recording on a Wednesday instead of my usual Friday morning. So, um, so yeah, thanks for kind of bearing with me as I haven't produced in a little while, but hopefully we can get back into a normal rotation here this spring, um, January, February. So today's episode, um, you know, I've been looking for some content to, to put out, um, what you're going to notice is I'm going to start incorporating more of my PhD work. Um, I'm working on getting kind of things lined up for a PhD with Michael Haken at Union School of Theology um, over in England. And so that's going to be, uh, I'll, I'll probably do a whole episode devoted to that topic, why I'm doing it. Um, but just in brief, it's going to be on Thomas Hooker right now and his theological anthropology because that's kind of a big topic today. So it's going to be Puritan theological anthropology. And, uh, and yeah, like I said, I'll probably devote a, an episode to that um, and kind of update people as I go. But I'll be dropping some... Uh, some probably reflections on what I'm learning and studying uh, just because I find it fun. Uh, maybe get some guests on that, that have expertise in that, that, uh, that I'll need to talk to anyway. So anyways, today on this episode, um, we're going to be talking about this idea of a biblical critical theory. Um, Tim Keller recently tweeted out uh, a video by Chris Watkin on this idea of a biblical critical theory. So if you remember, I've done an episode on third wayism. You can go back. I can't remember which episode that is. I'll probably link it in the show notes. Uh, but I've done an episode on third wayism. And I highlighted in there kind of Keller's approach to apologetics and and his approach to triangulation. And I expressed in an episode I'd, I'd enjoy learning more about that so that I could better understand the approach itself. Well, it just so happens that in the last week, um, Keller kind of shared a video, January 6th, he shared a video from Chris Watkin uh, on this topic, on his apologetic method, um, and he talks about triangulation in there. And so I was really excited to watch it because, because I wanted to learn more. This was a video, uh, and I'll put it in the show notes as well, uh, from Reformed Theological Seminary in New York City from March of 2021. And so before I get into it, it's kind of going to be a, um, I'm not going to show the video as I go through it, as I kind of evaluate the ideas in it. Um, I just want to kind of share a part of my approach with this. Um, Keller is someone I, I deeply respect. Um, he has a very big impact in my own approach to ministry. And so I think a lot of people, they'll either see me criticize his ideas or push back against some. Um, they may see me do that on my podcast or on Twitter or whatever it may be. And think, man, Chase does not like Tim Keller. That's That's not what it's about. Um, really I've, I have a deep respect for him. Um, he's going through cancer. I've been praying for him. Um, I think, you know, if you wanted to listen to somebody who has more of an insider knowledge of Keller's ministry, you could listen to Aaron Wren's podcast on Tim Keller, um, deep respect, deep admiration of Keller's ministry up there. And so 
whenever I critique, sometimes people sense a lack of appreciation or a lack of respect for that. And that's not where my heart comes from in it. In fact, um, it's kind of the opposite because I respect him so much. And because he has such a great impact for a lot of people, I think that um, he's a public theologian, so to speak. And so some of the ideas that he promotes, maybe we need to uh, have some careful scrutiny on them. So in no way is it supposed to pile on or anything like that, but it is supposed to uh, kind of subject ideas that I, I view as kind of, uh, I view differently. I'll put it that way. And you'll see as I go throughout the episode, just just to evaluate them. Um, and I think I, I actually have a huge problem with people who kind of treat Keller as some kind of uh, patron saint that can't be questioned. Um, I know I operated that way. I can think of a conversation with a guy in my church back in 2013. Um, and I presented a Tim Keller article in a small group study and they started kind of questioning it, undermining it. And I was like, this is Tim Keller. How dare you, you know, kind of like think you're smarter than him. And so I get that attitude. Um, I've had to repent of that attitude. And I think it's a really unhelpful attitude for discourse today. Um, a lot of people treat Tim Keller like he's the prophet Muhammad. Um, and they try to enact these kind of blasphemy laws on on critiquing Keller in any way. Um, and I think that's really unchristian. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's part of the reason I do it. A lot of my friends are impacted by Keller. I've been impacted by Keller. And really, it's not so much about Keller the person, um, although ideas do kind of make up a person. But really, some of the ideas he's putting forward, uh, particularly with this one, this episode, we're talking about critical, biblical, critical theory. So he tweeted out. January 6, kind of promoting. He said, there's lots of confusion over critical theory. That's definitely true. Um, See this helpful lecture by Chris Watkin. It not only explains what a critical theory is, but it shows that it's possible to develop a biblical critical theory. Um, So I was glad to see this because it helps me understand and brings more clarity uh, to kind of his approach. And so I listened to this video twice just to make sure I was hearing it correctly. And I just wanted to kind of share my thoughts on uh, really what I heard uh, in the video and and kind of the approach therein. So there's kind of, I, I thought I had three critiques, but they kind of overlap. I'll kind of follow the trend of the video. So if you were to watch it, I would go watch it on your own. You don't need to take my word for it, but you can go watch it on your own. But just as I kind of listen to the video, here's some notes I jotted down about, you know, what what do I find problematic with this approach? So first, you know, early on, kind of the idea is put forward um, that we can overlook a supposed narrow definition of critical theory and in favor of a broader definition of critical theory. The narrow definition is, is kind of that understanding of critical theory that's uh, developed from Marxism, um, neo-Marxism, from Marcuse and, and other uh, philosophers who developed critical theory to undermine kind of modernism uh, as a whole, and really, uh, they they thought it to be kind of a useful tool to deconstruct uh, kind of language and society. So it's a very postmodern approach, and it's a neo-Marxist approach. It's really where critical race theory kind of came from. Critical race theory is a legal kind of discipline uh, to examine the impacts of intersectionality and race uh, within kind of law and society. And so. Um, I'm not going to go down that rabbit trail on this episode, but that's how Watkin defines a narrow definition of critical theory. And he spends very, a very brief amount of time kind of discussing that and said he moves on quickly to embracing a broad definition of critical theory. And that's the one he chooses to engage in. Um, I, I, I just immediately found this odd. It was a very strange pivot 
Um, I think his justification for doing so was that he had a class in undergrad called Modern Critical Theory, and he enjoyed it. And so that's what why he thinks it's redeemable. I, I don't understand. Uh, I mean, and I mean that in the most genuine way. It it It's boggling to me how one can overlook kind of the history of a philosophy and just kind of put it aside and say, you know what, there are bad things in it, but here's how I'm going to use it. And it's like, well, man, like that's that we wouldn't do that with other things. And the example I was thinking of as I was listening to this YouTube uh, kind of presentation was many people are not, we wouldn't do that with this concept of nationalism. A lot of people look at nationalism and they're like, we can't redeem that word. That concept is irredeemable. And yet they seem really keen on saying that critical theory can be redeemed. And it, it's really, uh, I view it as a disingenuous disingenuous approach to language. I know this is a semantic game, um, but really that's what postmodernism does is it makes language something that is beholden and captured by those in power. And so language becomes a discourse of power. Um, and I, there is some truth in that, but but by and large, we shouldn't play that game with them. Um, we should look at what critical theory actually says and and see if we need it. He says we need a biblical critical theory. That's at the end of the video. Not said that it's possible, not showing why we could do this, but saying that we need to do this. And so there's more of an emphasis on this is what we should do, not just this is what we could do. And so that's why I'm so concerned about it. It seems to be overlooking uh, very problematic things. And and this kind of gets into the pro, uh, apologetic approach, um, which I'll discuss more kind of later on. But right, o- right off the bat, I'm, I'm really confused because uh, critical race theory is one of the hottest topics in our society today. Whether you think it's good, bad, whatever your assessment of it is, there's no doubt that it's become a flashpoint topic of conversation. And there are a lot of people who are discussing it who really don't know what it means other than that it's like um, kind of the latest term that's being thrown out in a cultural war, okay? With that said, the idea that we can just overlook that in favor of kind of going back to critical theory, which is kind of the umbrella term which critical race theory kind of flows out of, the idea that we can just like, like, well, we can just ignore that is, is symptomatic of the problem of this apologetic approach. The fact that there is no time devoted to discussing critical race theory and showing uh, how Christians should engage with it and said, it's just kind of like, it's not there. <laughs> it's like, we're supposed to ignore it. Uh, that you'll see how that plays out as the video progresses. So what kind of comes next is um, he discusses critical theory, uh, the idea of critical theory and, and how it has figures and all these other concepts and different patterns and how it's supposed to uncover and show kind of what's behind reality. And, um, you know, in terms of kind of an academic lecture uh, discussing critical theory, there are issues I could take with some of his understanding. But Chris uh, Watkin is a smart guy. I mean, I've one, I just got one of his books. So he's an intelligent guy. I'm just going to trust that, hey, like that he's representing uh, critical theory. He just kind of does a summary approach there. And then he try he, what he does is the idea is presented that, you know, similar to Augustine and the city of God and similar to other things like John Stott, uh, there's this concept of we should uh, listen to the world and the word. 
Now, I know a lot of Christians immediately, if you're more of a fundamentalist leaning, you're going to hear that and go, we should never listen to the world. Like, how dare he say that? And you have to understand what he's trying to show. He's trying to show that as we live our lives, we are inevitably going to bump up against concerns that people have, our neighbors, our family, our friends, people who go to our church, and we should listen to their concerns. We should take them seriously, and then we should gauge them with the word. So I don't think it's as bad as it sounds uh, uh, at first blush. Um, and then he, he references Schaefer kind of taking the roof off of uh, kind of the world and exposing it for what it is. He references Keller's own approach. Uh, Keller's own approach that he represents apparently is that we should confront kind of the ideas of the world and then console them or complete them, um, which in, in concept is not uh, bad, wrong. My question would just be, where's the confrontation? I don't, I'm, I'm lacking uh, kind of an awareness of that. Now, then again, I haven't listened to every Keller sermon. I haven't read every Keller book. I've read a lot of his books. Um, and I, I, you know, I don't assume to know what's going on, although I sense an absence of confrontation. That's, that's, and I sense an absence of confrontation from those who kind of esteem Keller's approach to engagement, contextualization, uh, mission, being missional, uh, all this stuff. Um, this is in the part of the video, he starts to get into diagonalization. So diagonalizing, the way he defines it, is you're going to take two truths uh, or two kind of glimpses of the truth, and you're going to try to harmonize them. So you're going to try to bring them together. You're going to try to like synthesize them. And it's not, he says in the video, it's not some kind of midway point between the two, but it's going to be kind of an off triangle, I don't know, uh, somewhere off the binary. Um uh, which is what I understood triangulation to be and diagonalization to be before I watched this lecture, before I listened to this. So I don't know that I learned anything that I didn't know already. That's not an insult to Watkin. It's just saying I was hoping to get more insight into that because to me, it still takes a false dichotomy um, as true. So the world offers us false dichotomies all the time, false dilemmas, uh, false choice. And then it assumes that both that the that the choice is somewhat true. And so we have to like listen to it and believe it. Um, and I just don't know why that, why we assume that both approaches are, have some truth to them. This is, and he admits this, Watkin admits this in his approach. He says, this may seem like the elephant illustration. The elephant illustration, of course, is the, the typical kind of approach where uh, all religions kind of are feeling different parts of an elephant, but they're blind. And so one will describe the leg, one will describe the tail, one will describe the body, one will describe the ear, one will describe the trunk, and they're all getting at parts of the truth. And he admits that this approach is similar to that approach. And I'm like, yeah, so that's why we shouldn't embrace it. Like, that's not a good approach to truth and apologetics. Um, the diagonalization approach, um, I've got someone coming in here, is like Hegel, it's very much a synthesis of two opposing sides. I, I, I fail to understand how this is a sufficient approach apologetically. Um, I, I understand the approach itself. I just disagree that it's going to be faithful to the Christian witness. Instead, it's going to be constantly reacting to a false choice the world presents us. Um, elsewhere, later on in the video, and this is, this is where he kind of gets into Keller's approach, his own approach, and Augustine. And so well, the way he describes in the way, uh, and I don't know where he got, got this quote from, it looks like a YouTube video that Keller put out, is he says, we shouldn't bring rational defenses to the faith until people want to believe. And so the idea is that we should withhold speaking truth or speaking kind of true things and, and confronting until people want that truth 
to be true. So the apologetic approach is beholden to what people want. So reason becomes subservient to desire. And this is this is why I'm extremely critical of this approach because my kind of book and background is on triperspectivalism and and kind of the concept that there's three perspectives on how we engage with truth. There's the normative, the existential, and the situational. And each one of them, none of them are primary, and each one of them helps us ascertain the truth. But to make a linear approach becomes very problematic, and it's actually a modern approach. What I'm not saying is I'm not trying to undermine Augustine or church history or the Bible when it talks about the importance of desire and wants and the centrality of the heart. I'm not trying to go against that. What I'm trying to say is that when we take those as totalizing truths, and then we make them linear in our apologetic approach and our evangelism, as if we have to wait till people want the truth to tell them the truth, I think that's a recipe for disaster. And I think that leads people to hell because we're waiting for to tell people the truth until they become regenerated, until God gives them new desires, or until you've explained it in a clever enough way for them to then go, yeah, I want that. And then you tell them about Christianity. I just don't see how that's a sufficient approach. Not only that, I mean, that that can work interpersonally. Like we have to give credit where credit is due. Sometimes you need to use a narrative with a friend uh, to kind of resonate, to talk to them about, hey, why do we want the world to be a better place? And and I think he talks about kind of the fairy tale kind of idea where every fairy tale is just a re reflection of the beauty of the truth of the gospel narrative. And so you can use that interpersonally. You can I use that pastorally when am I preaching sometimes? But this idea that we have to wait to speak truth until people want to hear the truth, I think that that's part of the problem of why we're here. That's like symptomatic of the issue. And so I really, I don't, um, I don't understand this. I mean, I understand it intellectually. It's not like if you use more words to explain it, then I'll understand it. It's, it's very confusing as to how this is such a singular approach. Um, the apologetic method becomes beholden to what people want. And this is this, I think this explains why there's a lack of confrontation. If people don't want the truth, why would we confront them? Um, this is at minute 41 of the video. And so, for example, if people don't want the gender binary to be true, then what the gender binary becomes is a distraction to the gospel. That's how this method works. And that's why there's so many Christians, so many pastors who are unwilling to speak about issues that are flashpoint issues in our society is because they're waiting for society to want things to be true. And I think that's, that's a, there are terrible consequences that flow out of that. And we will only keep giving over people to lies if we do not speak about the truth of male and female and other issues unless people want them to be true. That's not, uh, that's not a helpful way. And then lastly, kind of closing out the video, one of the things he highlights, um, and this was in the Q&A, I think, um, he, he talks about other philosophers. Um, and Watkins says we, we shouldn't attack Freud, but we should show what he's getting at and come along and help him. And so this is Watkins' approach to uh, ideas, philosophies from other people that we should come along and help them and show what they're getting at. This principle, I don't know where it comes from. I don't know why this is kind of lauded as some kind of like good approach to the history of ideas that we should just kind of have this uncritical or if it is critical, we should like view it more as like coming alongside a conversation partner than it is like, no, we should like dismantle these 
evil ideas. Um, I, I don't understand. Like, you can do both, I guess. But he's not doing both. He's suggesting that we should just come along, Freud, and other people like Freud, Marcus, Derrida, um, anyone else in the history of ideas, myself included. We should just come along and help other people and show them what they're trying to get at, and we should help them. Um, this is easily disproven by a reductio ad absurdum, where you would not say the same about Hitler. You would not look at Mein Kampf and go, we should just come alongside Mein Kampf and see what see what he's getting at and try to help him like that that's so disingenuous it boggles the mind and i don't understand how this is so blaringly disproved logically um what this really seems to me to be is a kind of a liberal secular academic paradigm for the the process of engaging ideas you see this all the time in the academy and in publications is that we're not allowed to critique ideas until we um show that we're on the same team and that we're all just kind of the same and we're just all searching for the truth. And so we just should help each other. Um, and so you kind of bathe the secular approach to academic engagement with kind of these Christian ethics of, of love and peace and harmony. Um, and really, I think we're just taking the world at their own terms and submitting our approach to their approach. Um, I don't think this is going to lead to more human flourishing, uh, a greater understanding of truth. Um, I, I just I don't I don't get it. I, I don't think that they actually believe this. And here's the reason why, because they have no problem attacking ideas they disagree with. If it comes from the right person, they're going to put these ideas on blast. The the case point right now is Christian nationalism. I mean, there there is no doubt that that Christianity today, Tim Keller, other people have no problem dismissing and attacking. Christian nationalism. They're not interested in showing what they're getting at in Christian nationalism. They're not interested in coming alongside Christian nationalism to help it. Like, it's disingenuous. And I think that's why it gets me so riled up, is it? it's very hypocritical. It, it's, it's pretending to be charitable, but in reality, it's extremely biased, and it's beholden to a certain approach that just so happens to comport with the machinations of our world, with those in power in our world, those who claim the elite status in our world. And so I just view it as, as hypocritical. Um, look, the, the video itself, the lecture has some good stuff in it, some good reflections, but by and large, if this is the approach, if this is the approach of, of kind of Keller's kind of summation of his apologetic method, which he endorsed it, that doesn't mean it's, I mean, people endorse my book that would disagree with me. So it's not like he's endorsing everything Watkins says, but if this is even suggested to be a redeemable approach, I really have some some big problems with it, as you can tell. Um, I think it's really problematic, and I think it's really disingenuous that we can just somehow ignore critical theory as like, well, there's a narrow definition, and then we can adopt a broader definition, therefore it's redeemable and we're going to use it. That's not true, and you know it. And so, you know, I'm just tired of being lied to by a lot of people um, as if they're like so... Uh, above kind of uh, disc powers of discourse and and somehow they aren't participating in uh, in the self-destruction of our own society by by kind of playing by the rules of the world. We as Christians, here's kind of the positive vision. If I were to give a, a more positive vision, there's some stuff in here you can take in your evangelistic approaches and your apologetic approaches and your preaching. There's some stuff in here that you might be able to employ. Also, we should not be scared to tell the truth. We should not wait until people want to hear the truth to tell it. If we keep doing that, 
Well, that's how we got here. We've been beholden to a seeker-sensitive, missional approach to preaching, to church planting, and we have to stop being so singular in our approach. We have to speak the truth, and our world is crying out for it. I mean, there's there's people in our world, in my county, in, in my city, my friends, who are desperate for the truth. They're dying for the truth. And, and so many pastors cannot be bothered to lift a finger to say the truth about gender, about marriage, about how the world works, because they're just waiting. I don't know what they're waiting for, but they're waiting. And so we have to learn to pick up different tools, to use different tools in our methods of preaching, engagement, and apologetics than this tool. This tool is, is not going to be helpful. It's just going to lead us to uh, more corruption and more pollution in our doctrine. And so I, I would just encourage you, if you listen to it, look, try to be charitable just for the sake of like in, in intellectual engagement that can be useful. You can learn some things. But in general, um, look, we've got to learn to attack false ideas and we've got to learn to do it publicly. We've got to learn to do it fast. And I know there's a, that's going to be wildly problematic for a lot of my friends because they're just going to say, you're just being a reactionary. You're just being a clanging symbol, as the Bible would say, right? And that's not, that's not the goal when we speak truth. We should have a prophetic witness to our society, and we should speak boldly about the truths of God's word. We should do so in a way that we don't needlessly offend, but we should be clear about what we believe. And I don't think that this uh, kind of these ideas suggested in this YouTube episode from Reformed Theological Seminary, I do not think that's going to help us. So that's kind of my beef with it today. Um, Sorry to do a little bit of a reactionary YouTube video. I don't typically engage in that kind of uh, content, at least on this podcast. And so thank you for hanging with me today. We do have some great guests. It's just really hard to to get them lined up with the kind of doing PhD stuff. And then also, uh, you know, doing church stuff, family, all the stuff going on in my life. So um, scheduling guests is proving a lot more cumbersome than I thought, but we're going to get some great guests lined up. I know I've got some people hankering to be on the podcast, like uh, Andrew Sandlin, Michael Foster, and a lot of other people who are, uh, who are just helpful people to think, think with. So thanks for being here. Uh, and hopefully we will see you soon. 